Welcome to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. In this podcast, we will be speaking with various real estate and business professionals about real estate investing, entrepreneurship, and financial freedom. So, if you're interested in learning about real estate investing, then stay tuned and be sure to take advantage of the free tips and strategies that will be shared by our weekly guests. And now, your host, Penny Lubinsky. Welcome to the Real Estate Ventures Podcast. I am your host, Penny Lubinsky, and today we have a special guest, Jeff Greenberg. Jeff is currently the CEO and managing member of Synergetic Investment Group. He has managed all aspects of commercial real estate, including acquisitions, operations, value-add, dispositions, and investor relations. Synergetic Investment Group has been involved in $50 million of real estate and owns over 1,100 units in Texas, Georgia, Arizona, and Ohio. Jeff has also been featured on the Bigger Pockets podcast, the Best Ever podcast, and has his own meetup. Jeff, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Penny. This is great. Glad to be here. Yeah, pleasure is mine. Uh, Jeff, we start every podcast by asking every guest how they got started in real estate. What did you do before and what kind of led you down this path? Well, I was I was in IT before. And uh, what brought me into real estate? Well, part of it was from a friend of mine was talking about getting into real estate. And, and I had no idea what real estate investing was. The only thing I really thought it was uh, buying a single family house and renting it out. That was real estate investing. I had no idea how commercial properties were owned. I had no idea about fix and flips or any of that stuff. And he mentioned it and that kind of got me thinking. But also at that time, I was going through a divorce and I was reevaluating my financial situation and decided that that wasn't going to get me very far with uh, what I had in my retirement funds since my ex-wife was going to be getting the house. So I figured, okay, I need to do something else. Just putting money into my 401k wasn't going to do it. So that got me motivated. And I started to look into uh, single family homes, um, looking mainly at REOs or bank owned properties that were already owned by them and trying to see if I could go and buy those and flip them and do that. And uh, it was a, it was a bad time to be doing it because prices were dropping uh, in that uh, was probably about two, 2006, 2007 uh, when prices were dropping and it was, the banks didn't know what to do with all the bank owned properties. So that's kind of where I got started on that end of it. And then as far as when I realized that that wasn't the best place to be, uh, I happened to see a gentleman that was talking about leveraging your own money and using other people's money to invest in commercial real estate. And because I had limited funds of my own, that excited me that I was able to buy bigger properties and use my money for to get into the deals, but other people's money to actually close the deals and to get into those investments. So that was kind of the beginning stages of commercial real estate. Right. And one thing I want to point out, like, it's really cool that you were able to come to that realization that your 401k or retirement fund just wasn't going to be enough. And like, we're trained our whole lives to 
you know, get a job and work nine to five and kind of just like plan and work towards, hey, you know, one day we'll be retired and we'll be good, but not necessarily does that work in everyone's situation and not necessarily is that enough. So really um, interesting that you were able to come to that realization, I guess, because of the divorce and your situation that made you open up your eyes and see that, hey, you know, there's probably more I could be doing um, to be, you know, setting aside or setting, setting more capital for the future and planning ahead more um, in that way. But I also want to touch on something else. It sounds like you started out with single family and most people do. But my, my question is, um, do you kind of in hindsight, are you glad that you started with single family and then eventually um, graduated and moved on to multifamily? Or do you kind of wish you had made the jump right away to multifamily? Well, I tried to do single family. I never did. I never, I never bought anything single family. So that was, that was my, my attempt. But at the time I was doing it, as I said, prices were dropping so fast and banks had so many uh, bank owned properties. They couldn't move them. They didn't know what to do with them. So I never did buy a single family. The only single family I've ever bought in my life is my own, my own personal residence. Uh, so then, so then we went in, then, then I went into commercial real estate and to answer your question about the best route, you know, that depends. I feel that it is not necessary to go into the single family route to get into commercial real estate. I think they're unrelated enough that you don't really get the experience that you need um, on the smaller properties. Um, there's other people that think uh, otherwise and do like going to the, the, the single family, the duplex, the quad, buying the tens and twenties. I feel that's a much longer route. I feel that if you could get into a deal, say with, with another partner, uh, maybe do a JV deal and maybe get into a 10 unit or a 20 unit. I think you would accelerate your growth a lot faster, just jumping right into commercial real estate, preferably with somebody with more experience that's already done it. That's the main thing is, is there's a lot of things involved with the commercial real estate and jumping in with somebody else with experience is going to help you a lot more. Right. I agree with that. And it's interesting because I actually um, started out also with single family and my mindset was that I was going to build up a portfolio of single family houses. And I went and I did one. Um, and then I was sort of still on that path. I was like, okay, how do I pick up a second and a third now? And then Corona hit, and I really had a chance to like, you know, rethink my whole strategy. And at that time, you know, basically um, there was, it was, it gave me a lot of time to, to sit back and figure out, Hey, um, is this really the best path for me now? Um, because I really had planned on getting into multifamily, but sometime way down the road, but Corona and being stuck at home and having a lot of time to sit and think to myself gave me the push that I kind of needed to say, Hey, you know, we can make multifamily happen now. And to what you're saying, I, I totally agree. Like, I think that in with multifamily, it's all about teams and it's all about leveraging other people's skills. And, you know, it, it really, it is something that as soon as, you know, one 
an individual figures out what their skills are and what value they can bring to the table, it becomes easier for them to pair up with other more experienced operators or capital raisers or whatever it may be to be able to go ahead and, and take down larger deals. So I'm totally with you on that. Um, I'd like to touch on something else. So you've been involved in a lot of different aspects of commercial real estate, as we mentioned earlier, um, literally from A to Z, but it sounds like right now in this stage in your career, um, you're leaning a little bit more towards the capital raising side. Can you touch on this a little bit more, um, why you're choosing this route now and yeah, what, what kind of, what are the benefits to this? Well, right now there's, there's so many different aspects that you could be doing of your business. And as you mentioned, it's, uh, you know, it's a team sport. You need to network, you need to bring in other people. Um, I've, I did have a, a team for a while. I had about nine people and I had a team that were doing the, the broker relationships and finding the deals. I had a team that were analyzing the deals once they brought those in. And I had a team working, you know, different, all the different aspects of that program, but I was mentoring them um, as I was doing it. Uh, I could have created a company and actually uh, did it that way. But we worked together. We actually closed on about three different deals with that group of people. And then one of the problems is when you train people, you know, sometimes they're gonna go other directions, but you know, you have to train people. The, 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 the question's always asked, you know, what's worse than training people and having them leave, you know? Uh, and the answer is not training them and having them stay. So, um, you know, they, they were off doing their own thing and, you know, I trained them and some of them are off doing other things and rather than bringing in new people and continuing building the company, I teamed up with different groups and got into different deals with, with different groups, um, on all of the deals that I was involved with, I was always the lead, uh, the lead GP. Uh, the buck always stopped with me. It was always my responsibility. I did that for 12 years and I looked at the last deal that we did and how many partners we ended up having to help out close on the deal and everything. I looked and I decided that I would much rather take a smaller piece and help to bring deals uh, to investors and bring them in those deals and if I get a small piece of the deal and I can do many of those a year, then that would suit me fine. I enjoy working with people. I enjoy educating investors. I enjoy uh, showing them about commercial real estate. So I get to do what I enjoy and keep an eye on the deal, but I'm not the main, uh, the main person that's responsible for it. I attend meetings but I don't have to lead the meetings. I could listen to what's going on, put my comments in and help out in any way I can. But my responsibility is to, to take care of my investors. And um, that's, that's the part I enjoy. So I figured that's the way I'm going to focus. Got it. Got it. And um, as the, as the person that is bringing in the investors and bringing in the capital um, you are, I mean, pretty much the main responsibility is vetting out the GP team, um, you know, vetting out the deal, making sure everything is 
you know, nice and clean with the deal and with the team. Uh, my question is that, you know, with the market where it is now and as competitive as things are, we all know that there's a lot of deals getting under contract that maybe shouldn't be getting under contract. Some people that are a little too aggressive with the underwriting, um, sometimes trying to push deals that don't really make sense. So my question to you is like, how are you going about finding the right GP teams that you trust and you like working with so that you feel like you can comfortably bring your, bring your investors in and feel safe, um, you know, working with, with, with a team that's say conservative with the underwriting, um, has great communication and that you know, like, and trust. Well, getting, getting to know them is the first thing is getting to know them, getting to know their business and looking at their track record, looking, you know, talking to people that they uh, use um, as vendors or their property management companies, but, and knowing their, their business, you know, going to their office and seeing, you know, what, what kind of business they're running, um, but talking to other people that have maybe invested with them, you know, seeing what their history is. Uh, just essentially getting to know them. But the priority is with the deal sponsor. And once I'm comfortable with the deal sponsor, that's the person running the deal, the, G, the, the GP team, um, getting comfortable with them. And then we could go on and look at the deal and evaluate the deal. But most people do it backwards. They go and they see a deal, they evaluate the deal and they say, oh, okay, you know, this team seems like they're okay but may not do much in the way of investigation on them. And I, I feel that's backwards. I feel the deal, deal sponsor is more important than the deal. There'll be lots of deals, but the deal sponsor can make or break a deal. I agree with that 100%. And then while on the topic of capital raising, um, this idea has been thrown around a lot and it's becoming increasingly more popular. Hunter Thompson talks about it a bit. It's the SPV, the special purpose vehicle. Um, I know this is something that you've been um, interested in getting involved with. Um, can you just explain on a high level, uh, what would the SPV be and what are some of the benefits of working with it? Yeah, the, the SPV, basically you're make, you're creating an LLC. You're actually doing your own syndication uh, where you're, uh, providing people with all the disclosure documents and bringing them into the, that LLC uh, as members. And then that's investing in the deal. And one of the uh, advantages for the investor is you've got somebody that is, has experience and is looking, you know, at the deal and doing a lot of the, um, a lot of the due diligence that, most individuals are unable to do either. They don't have the time. They don't have the knowledge. Uh, they don't have the ability to do it. So we're doing that as far as the SPV and then entering in the, in the deal as a limited partner and uh, providing, you know, that, that for the investors. Okay. And then for the investors, because I'm sure this comes up when you're talking to investors, like, is there any difference in, say, you know, their tax benefits or any other returns? Like, is there anything that would affect them negatively through using an SPV or is there really no difference for them? It's more just a difference in how you're structuring it. And if anything, it can be an advantage because of what you mentioned, um, because an extra set of eyes, you know, that's in charge and, and running this fund um, and looking out for them, so to speak. Well, the what we try to do is we try to get the investors the same uh, returns that they would get if they went straight into the deal. Uh, that 
and we do that by being able to negotiate with the deal sponsor that if we're bringing in a larger check that we can get uh, we could get a certain terms that an individual couldn't get. So that's that's the uh, what we plan on doing. Now, in some cases, there may be some extra fees that end up going to the investors, but we're going to try to avoid those as much as possible and to try to get the investors um, as much as they would if they went straight in. Now, on the other thing is, is most investors won't know about the deals, wouldn't know about the deals, and wouldn't know how to do the due diligence on the deals if we didn't bring them uh, into the deal. So they probably wouldn't be able to uh, get into the deal or find the deal anyhow. So we're bringing that to the table. The other thing is, is down the road, we may be looking at deals where the um, the minimum buy-in may be way above what the investors want to come in with or, or are able to come in with. Um, I've seen deals where the minimum could be $250,000 or the minimum could be a million dollar buy-in. And most individuals we talk to uh, aren't able to afford that. Um, and if we could come in as an SPV and come in with a million dollars or $2 million, uh, then we could get invited to that party, which most people uh, wouldn't be able to. I think that is huge, actually. And I think for investors, for LPs, um, that's massive to be able to get into these high-end GP teams and these you know, high, high class deals that they otherwise wouldn't have access to because they just don't have the capital to invest, you know, $250,000, $500,000 into a deal. The SPV does give them the ability to get into the deal through creating this fund and then coming, bringing the fund as one big entity. Um, so, so that makes a lot of sense. And that's definitely a huge advantage um, of the SPV model. Um, okay, I'd like to shift and pivot a little bit and, and talk a little bit about due diligence. Um, as capital raisers, um, generally speaking, you, you're going to be involved in the due diligence process. Um, I know you recently flew down about a deal that you're doing due diligence on. I'm just curious on a high level, what, what are some of the things that you look out for doing due diligence? Uh, what are some, some red flags that you look out for, um, some, some green flags? Like, what, what are the main things that, that people should be looking out for during due diligence? Well, to start out with the main thing, as I said earlier, is the deal sponsor. So let's assume that we've gotten past all the uh, due diligence on the deal sponsor, and we're talking um, about the deal. And typically on the deal, uh, if we're talking about the, the physical due diligence of going and looking at the property, you want to compare what you're seeing on the property with the assumptions of the, the deal sponsor, of the deal. Uh, looking at what they're planning on putting into the building on, in capital, uh, what the, the comps, looking at the, comp, the comparable properties, are these really comparable properties or are these properties you know, either, either too far away from this property or maybe they're much newer or maybe they have much better curb appeal? Are they really a comparable because typically on these deals, you'll look at a comp and you'll say, okay, they're getting this rent. So that means we could get that rent. So I want to know, uh, is this a comparable or is this, 
apples and oranges where we can't compare. The other thing is, is about the neighborhood. Is their neighborhood nicer than the neighborhood of this property? You know, uh, is it a better street uh, that has more traffic coming through? Uh, different things about um, the property, you know, where it's located, the market, all kinds of things that they're assuming when they're doing the um, underwriting, uh, the due diligence that we would take is to confirm their assumptions because they're using those assumptions to, to adjust their numbers. And, you know, the numbers have to be based on something. And so we need to see what those assumptions were. So I would say that's the biggest thing is, is those assumptions. Do I agree with, with what they're saying? And again, that goes back to the deal sponsor, your deal sponsor that has integrity, that, that you trust, that has a great track record. Um, more than likely you're, you're going to agree with those assumptions and not have any problems. But the thing is, is if they're, if you do have questions about their assumptions, then you ask, you say, Hey, you know, you know, this is what you assume, but you know, I'm seeing this and you, and if they're open to those communications, they're ready and willing to justify what they're assuming. Um, you know, that's a good sign that they could, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, you know, looked at something wrong and they can tell me why their assumption is correct. Got it. And have you ever had from your past experience, any horror stories during due diligence? Like, is there any ever anything that you uncovered that just sort of killed the deal that just made it impossible to move forward after you discovered that? Well, actually, yes. Yes. Okay. On a San Antonio deal, um, there was a, a deal. We were like a hundred unit property in San Antonio and the, um, the, the deferred maintenance was atrocious. Um, they had, they had horrible plumbing issues where, uh, galvanized pipe, the, the pipe would back up. They, when they had a, um, clogged sink in the kitchen, they would go outside to the clean out where you undo the clean out and they would just leave it off. And all the, all the gray, the gray water would just go into the, into the flower beds. And that was, you know, that was how they solved that problem instead of actually going and, and doing that. There was one unit in that property, which I thought was rather interesting. I mean, this, this one wouldn't have stopped me from buying it, but it was interesting issue where uh, we walked into the unit and met some very nice people. And this one lady, we walk into this one room and this lady says, says, oh, my, my son can't come into this room because he has an asthma attack every time he comes into the room. Well, I walked into the room and I started coughing away. I was having an attack in this room and I'm sitting here. What is in this room? And I look up at the, the air conditioning vent and you could see dust coming off of the air conditioning vent. And I'm here. Okay. So the filter hasn't been changed on this air conditioner. So we went over to the exchange unit and looked at it. And there was no filter in there at all. And you could see tons of dust. So this, this uh, property was killing this poor kid. He couldn't go into the room and I, I couldn't go into that room. And that was because of the, the poor maintenance. Um, that wasn't the reason we walked away. It was more of the plumbing issues. And we tried to get uh, a repair allowance for all the plumbing problems 
and they wouldn't budge on the price. And the, the whole building uh, was going to need a lot of plumbing issues. So that was, that was the reason we walked away on that one. Right. Interesting. And then one more question before we move to the final four thoughts on like retrading, does that kill reputations? Is that bad to retrade? And does that, you know, will the seller never want to deal with you again? Should that happen? Like, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, you don't, you don't want to retrade on a, on a deal. And typically, you know, there's, there's certain things that you should know prior to going out and doing your due diligence and, and when you're going to be, um, putting your offer in on a property that there's certain things you might, you should know about, you know, the age of the property, you're going to have some expectation of, of some issues. And there's always going to be little things. The only time I would retrade. And, and in this case, I did uh, attempt to do a retrade. Is there stuff that that was above and beyond that you couldn't have seen in the, in the details that you had, you know, the, the offering memorandum and, and any other due diligence that you had, you really couldn't, you could really couldn't tell that things were as bad as they were. And, you know, certainly you don't want to retrade on minor issues. You know, there's, there's always going to be, you know, some things, some little electrical issues or, you know, uh, little plumbing issues. But this was systemic throughout the property, and it was a major issue. Uh, and, you know, so we, yeah, we, we attempted a retrade. But certainly you don't want to do it, you know, you don't want to do it like uh, some people would do is you, you, uh, you offer a price, you know, thinking that, okay, once I get into the deal, I'm going to retrade and they're, they're going to accept it, you know, where if I offer a lower price, they may, I may lose the deal. There's people that will do that. You offer a higher price and then retrade. Right. You don't go into a deal thinking that you're going to go retrade. That's going to soil your reputation. That's going to soil the broker's rec reputation because the broker is assuming that you're going to come in with an honest offer. And so you're blowing your reputation, you know, in front of everybody. Right. So you don't want to retrade unless, unless you really have to. Right. And, and I feel like that's why, um, you know, doing a lot of the legwork up front so that you don't come to being in a position to need to retrade is, is so important. And also, like, should you come in with that mindset of like what kind of what you just said, like, hey, I'll just come in at a at a higher price, but I'll definitely I'll don't worry, I'll retrade later. I feel like that's a great way to get one deal, but kill your reputation with all the people that would potentially bring you future deals down the road. So definitely not not recommended. All right. Let's move on to the final four. Um, what is your why? Why are you doing all this? Oh, a lot of it was for my retirement, I guess, in the beginning. And then it's, you know, for my kids and grandkids, I want to leave a legacy uh, for them. And my retirement funds weren't going to do that. So if I could help my kids and grandkids out, um, that's, you know, I want to, the more I could leave them to help them in their lives for their college education or whatever it may be. Um, you know, we, we all want to leave a legacy for our family. That's great. And what was the most influential book you've ever read? Um, you know, and this is a pretty, pretty common one that people will, will talk about. I mean, it's the two book, two books, you know, rich dad, poor dad, poor dad, but the big one was the cash flow quadrant. 
Um, You know, as as you mentioned in the beginning of this uh, podcast, um, you know, I was taught the same thing, you know, go to school, get an education, get a job, you know, and and then you, you know, work that job for your whole life and retire, you know, or 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 have a pension. You know, uh, my dad was a truck driver and, uh, you know, he he retired on his Teamster, his Teamster pension. And that was, you know, his thing was get educated and get a good job and work for them. And um, this was kind of a whole mindset change. You know, those two books were a big mindset change and and showed me the errors of my ways. And uh, so that's why I decided that was you know, my goals. Um, and I mentioned as far as with the divorce, it, it, it made me think about my finances and this, you know, I, I, I had never wanted to be an entrepreneur. That wasn't my goal. Uh, I had a brother that was an entrepreneur and I, I thought, okay, that's great, but he didn't have a family to support. I did. And so I had W2 jobs and it wasn't till later in my life when my kids are all grown, my, you know, uh, I didn't have to worry about anybody but myself that I finally, I finally was able to do it and become an entrepreneur. Right. And you know, what's interesting is that many people look at the nine to five, there's a, this misconception that nine to five, a secure job working up 401k, that that is called safety. Like that's called playing it safe and secure. And that, and that way you'll be, you know, in a secure place for retirement. But I think the, really the opposite is true. Like that re- leaves you very vulnerable and the entrepreneurial way, uh, especially through real estate investing. I mean, it may, seem a little daunting and scary at first but i think ultimately once the ball is rolling and once you're once you're doing deals and that and that sort of way is is, is becoming a, your financial that's becoming your life um i think that way actually is a lot safer for the long run and definitely for as far as like building real wealth i mean the possibilities are just incredible yeah i mean when i was young it was it was you saw people staying in jobs for long term that you could be in a job. For, I mean, I, I was, in, I, I worked one job for 20 years. I worked another job for 17 years. Wow. Um, you know, but nowadays you don't, and, and the thing nowadays, you don't hear that much about people doing that. And the other thing is, is I can remember looking at somebody's resume. And if you look at the resume and if they held a job for three years or four years and, and jump from job to job, that was a negative. That's not really a negative anymore. You know, people do that all the time that they're jumping from jobs. That's the way they feel that that's their way to get their best success. Um, so you don't see people staying in the job and retiring from that job. They've jumped multiple jobs. You know, this generation seems to be doing it that way. And as you said, it's not as secure anymore. I know plenty of people that have been on the job for plenty of time, their company merges with another company and all of a sudden after 20 years they're out of a job so you're absolutely right you know w2 jobs are not as secure as they used to be yeah absolutely um what would be the best advice that you would give somebody just getting started in real estate find somebody that's doing what you want to do and find a way to help them out how to be of service to them to get close to them there's plenty of books that you could read. There's plenty of podcasts you should, uh, you should listen to. There's a lot of good podcasts out there, a lot of great books. But the big thing is, is 
find somebody that's doing it, find somebody that's doing it and find a way to work with them, find something that you could offer to them. Don't come up there and say, Hey, I want you to mentor me. I've had many, many people do that. And I said, there's okay. What have you done for yourself? What have you done to start on this path? And, you know, I'll send them off to go read some books. I'll send them off. I say, here, go read this book and this book and then come back and talk to me. <laughs> okay. Don't expect me to start you from ground, you know, from ground zero. Um, go out and get yourself some education. Show me that you're somewhat motivated and then come back and tell me how you could help me out. And then maybe we could talk. So that would be my suggestions. You're going to learn so much more from somebody with experience than, than anything else, but you need to provide some, something for them. Either they're going to charge you a bunch of money or you could come in and do something that will help them out. Right. Either way, you're providing value to them just in different forms, but you have to be able to provide value in order to get back that mentoring, if that's what you're looking for. But the cool thing is about this industry is that it's, I think the oldest industry in the world. So anyone that's looking to get started, um, it shouldn't be hard for them to find people that are already successful at what they want to do, right? Syndication has been around, um, JVs have been around, multifamily, single family flips, all this stuff has been around for many, many years. And there's plenty of people that everybody knows within their network that, that does this kind of stuff. So it really should be easy um, to find someone. It's just about providing the right value to be able to, to get that mentorship. Um, the one, the one thing is, is what you need to do is to get exposed to the, to the, to the breadth of uh, diversity in the business, because there's so many different ways to get into real estate. There's so many different things that people do and not, I mean, there's commercial real estate, but there's all different asset types and there's, and there's other, there's notes and there's, you know, tax liens and deeds and, um, you know, so many different pieces of real estate. And you have to kind of find out which one clicks with you and your, your, your knowledge or your interest and get an idea of what's out there and then find somebody that's doing the area that you're interested in. Love it. Love it. All right. Um, what is your favorite hobby? My favorite hobby well, I bike ride every other day on a road bike. I guess that's kind of a hobby. That's my exercise. But other than that, my my favorite hobby is spending time with my grandkids. Okay, that's nice. <laughs> is that is that their favorite hobby too? I hope it is. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. You know, they they put up with grandpa. <laughs> well, but, let's get uh, from the podcast and ask them. Yeah, they, 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 are. they, they are. Yeah, they enjoy their grandpa you know, especially when he's spending money with them, but, uh, you know, it's nice to be able to do things for the grandkids. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, where can people find you? Where can people reach you? Uh, you could get me at my email is Jeff at synergetic IG.com. That's S Y N E R G E T I C I G.com. Um, that's the best place. Uh, you could join me on Tuesdays and Thursdays on clubhouse uh, four o'clock Pacific. Um, I'm talking to people and helping, uh, mentor people, um, on clubhouse, uh, two days a week. Um, those are probably the best ways. Also my website, uh, synergeticig.com. They could reach out to me there. 
Okay, excellent. Well, I definitely encourage everyone to go ahead and reach out to uh, Jeff. He's got a ton of experience. And as you can see, he's a well of knowledge. And Jeff, I'd like to take the opportunity to thank you as well for coming on the podcast and having these great conversations. We've discussed the capital raising due diligence, um, amongst other um, cool topics. So once again, thanks for joining and looking forward to reconnecting and getting you back on here someday. Thank you, Penny. And I, and I do have, I do have a giveaway for your, uh, for your listeners. Okay. Uh, if they go, if they go to S I G uh, C R E dot club slash sponsor. Uh, I have a bunch of questions there that you could ask a sponsor if you're looking to get into a deal as a passive investor. So that was S I G C R E dot club slash sponsor and uh there's some information as far as questions okay you heard it folks go check it out go fill out the form and um yeah definitely once again thank you so much jeff and looking forward to staying in touch with you thank you penny this was great thank you